from Coast to Coast to Coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. Did you recognize the noises from the top of the show? That was, of course, the platypus, an animal that is either an evolutionary masterpiece or just plain weird. A few weeks ago, we found a research note about a newly discovered trait of the platypus, and we couldn't wait to share it with you as part of a new segment we're testing out today on Terra Informa. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. This episode is about knowledge, who creates it, and who has access to it. So as you listen to this episode, we want you to think about the traditional knowledge holders on this land and the ways of knowing that have and continue to exist in this place. Western science is not the first or only system for making sense out of our beautiful and mysterious planet. Speaking of science, let's talk about it. What is science? Where does it come from? And how do I know if I've got it? So the Terran farmers are all researchers and we have had a lot of experience reading and writing about this quote-unquote science. Uh, Last week, the team joined in on a science communication workshop with CJSR podcast coordinator and Terra Informa alumni, Chris Chengyan Phillips, where we had the chance to flex our research interpretation skills. And I think a great place to start is figuring out what your audience already knows. Um, so I have a quiz that I want you to all take. I'm like so nervous. Well, we may have gotten high scores on our science quizzes during the workshop. We had a lot to learn about communicating the information we understand in a way that everyone can understand. In the most common form of scientific research, the kind practiced at universities and other post-secondary academic institutions, new discoveries are made by professors students, and academic staff. Sometimes a researcher will publish their discoveries in an academic journal. These journals are kind of like magazines in that they focus on specific themes or genres of research, but they come with a lot more text and a lot less glossy pictures. So just like a magazine, an academic journal has an editor and reviewers. These reviewers only read about new discoveries they have similar experience with, then make comments and recommendations to improve the article. Ultimately, these peers review the research and decide if it has been done to a high enough standard to be accepted and shared with the academic community. Once the research is published, it's accessible to other researchers, becomes part of the scientific record, and can be referenced in new studies or outside academia. This is what we call academic literature. But research is about more than just sharing findings with other researchers. The ultimate goal of new research is always to improve the lives of people. That might mean providing evidence for policy changes, influencing human behavior, perfecting medical techniques, 
or creating new goods and services. Scientific research contributes to our understanding and quality of life in a ton of different ways. At Terrainforma, one of our main goals is to help spread information from scientific research to the world outside of academia. But it can be tricky, especially when so many of us on the team are used to writing and talking with other specialized researchers. That's why we reached out to our CJSR podcast coordinator, Chris, to help us sharpen our science communication skills. Yeah, I feel like generally for me, when I approach writing for Terra Informa, I am so used to and so in the habit of writing papers. And so I approach it in that way. And I like bring that same academic language and all of that to, you know, writing scripts. Like, how do we relay the scientific information to people? But how do we let them know why this is a cool or important thing for them to know? So to recap, the ultimate goal for new research discoveries is that they improve people's lives and not just that they get published. But the way academic literature is made and shared means not just anybody can access and read these articles. The first barrier to new knowledge and discoveries is financial. Lots of academic journals are paywalled and for ludicrous amounts. Who can realistically pay $250 to read a single issue of an academic journal? If you're a post-secondary student or researcher associated with a college or university, you might have access to some of these journals because your institution pays for a license but the average person is likely to struggle to even see academic literature. The next challenge is accessibility. Most disciplines like the humanities or biology have developed their own set of terms and ideas that are only really understandable to people who have insider knowledge on the topic. To an outsider, these terms or words might look familiar, but are easily misunderstood for specialized concepts. This is called jargon. Researchers tend to have pretty severe jargonitis and love using big words, long sentences, and overcomplicated explanations of their concepts. Believe us, we've all read more than our fair share of work that is unnecessarily wordy or hard to understand. For example, you might read a paper from the social sciences and find it passing mention to the actor network theory and a reference to, but no description of, an ordinary least squares regression model. And I don't know, how about something about Marxist materialism? Does that all sound like gibberish? How about an entire discussion refuting an article from 20 years ago that was never mentioned in the literature review and it's just assumed by the author you know it inside and out? Academia, it's a lot to take in. And it quickly becomes discouraging if you're just looking to better understand the issues and world around you. So here at Terra Informa, we're working on breaking down and sharing some of our favorite articles and other cool new research with you, our listeners. And thus, we return to the humble platypus. So what is a platypus? I mean, we know it's a mammal, but it also kind of looks like someone just hit the randomizer button on an animal character creation screen. I mean, the platypus has a bill like a duck, a flat tail like a beaver, and webbed feet like an otter. The truth is, the first time British scientists saw a platypus, they believed it was a hoax 
made by sewing several other animals together. So platypi, or platypuses, or platypode, depending uh, on your scientific camp, there's kind of a debate, uh, are native to the east coast of Australia, a country many also consider to be a hoax. The platypus is a semi-aquatic species. It lives in and along streams and rivers, and it's mostly considered nocturnal, on average sleeping as long as 14 hours a day. So it's also kind of like a house cat. One of the unique features of the platypus is that it lays eggs instead of giving birth to live young. But just like other mammals, the mama platypus nurses her young for a few months. So this egg laying business makes the platypus a monotreme, a type of mammal with an ancient lineage. Monotremes have a unique evolutionary history. Way back when, they split off from the other two types of living mammals, the placentals, which include humans, and marsupials, which include kangaroos. Monotremes have been on their own independent evolutionary journey for a while and include just five living species, the platypus and four types of echidnas. To give you an idea of how far back the monotremes split, the oldest discovered platypus fossil is over 100,000 years old. That's pretty old. Mm-hmm. While the platypus has had a unique evolution, many of its traits are standard mammal stuff. The platypus is small, about 17 to 20 inches total in length, and can weigh up to five pounds. Or like most small animals, they have a few predators, including snakes, water rats, hawks, owls, and eagles. Platypi are carnivores, eating worms, insects, shrimp, and larvae. They dive down to the riverbed, dig out their prey, and then shove it into their cheek pouches, which are pretty much exactly what they sound like. They then carry their catch back to the surface to devour it. Something to note here. Adult platypuses do not have teeth. They have pads of hardened gum that help them sort of chew, then mash their food against gravel inside their cheek pouches. It sounds pretty weird until you start thinking about teeth, which are basically just calcium rocks in our mouths that break down when we use them for their intended purpose. Maybe none of us really have this chewing thing down as far as mammals go, and we should have taken more independent evolutionary chewing journeys. Another characteristic unique to the platypi and monotremes, they hunt using electrolocation. This means they detect electric signals in their prey. When a muscle contracts in, say, a delicious shrimp, it creates a tiny electric current. A platypus's electroreceptors detect these currents so they can find their prey with their eyes closed in the murky riverbeds where they hunt. This ability helps the platypus catch and eat the necessary 20% of its own body weight in food each day. Big shocker here. The platypus has another surprising trait. The male platypus has an ankle spur that can deliver venom, you know, like a snake. But not just any venom, one strong enough to kill small animals and incapacitate humans due to extreme pain. The venom is only produced by males and production increases during the June to October mating season. So this ability is considered an offensive rather than defensive mechanism. 
and may be used to establish dominance across a male's territory. So the platypus is a curious creature with a combination of strange and unique characteristics. It is part duck, part otter, part beaver, can detect electric signals, poison people, and lay eggs. And just recently, one of those new scientific research discoveries has been made about the platypus. A strange detail has come to light, a pun that will be shortly illuminated. You're listening to Terra Informa. I'm Elizabeth Dowdell, and joining me this week is Charlotte Thomason. We are talking about science, communicating science, and some new research on another interesting trait of the humble platypus. On October 15th, 2020, an article authored by Paula Anik, Sharon Anthony, Michaela Carlson, and others, we use et al. for that, was published online in the journal Mammalia. These scientists conducted some research, submitted it to a journal, and it was published. But Charlotte, what kind of science research did they do? I'll tell you, Liz. They took three platypi, stuck them under ultraviolet light, and guess what? The platypi started glowing green. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yes, you heard that right, glowing. It seems the platypus is not just a venomous, egg-laying, electrolocating duck otter beaver. It is also biofluorescent. I'm sorry, what? Um, what is biofluorescent? Biofluorescent. You mean aside from a high-scoring Scrabble word? Yes. Explain to me. To answer, let's split the word into its two pieces. First, bio, which means life. And fluorescence, which means the emission of light by a substance that has absorbed light or other electromagnetic radiation. When we put those words together, we get living things that absorb light and then emit it. Typically, the absorbed light is at a higher frequency than what is emitted. To understand what that means, let's take a step back and talk about what light is. Light is a type of energy, which we describe using the terms frequency and wavelength. The type of light that we can see, aptly named visible light, includes a range of wavelengths. We can perceive light at different individual wavelengths, which we see as different colors. But there's other types of energy beyond what we can see, such as infrared light and ultraviolet light. Platypus fur absorbs ultraviolet light, which is at a higher frequency and wavelength than the visible spectrum. It then emits lower frequency blue-green light which is visible to us humans. There are a few other creatures that demonstrate biofluorescence, including coral, sea turtles, and tree frogs. Biofluorescence in animals has a lot of different purposes. Some birds use it for mating. Some spiders will fluoresce in different colors to communicate or camouflage. 
very few mammals demonstrate biofluorescence. So the new discovery means that the platypus joins a, so far, exclusive club that also includes the flying squirrel and possums. How exactly did the research team make this discovery? Initially, they tested fluorescence with two preserved platypi in the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, Illinois. The platypi, one female and one assumed to be male, were photographed under visible and ultraviolet light. What these photographs revealed is that the platypus fur absorbed the ultraviolet light and re-emitted it as blue-green and cyan light. Part of the scientific process means you have to try and eliminate any other possible explanation for a phenomenon. Like maybe these specimens were prepared using a fluorescent chemical or collected from a site where they were exposed to something and the glowing green is just a random result. When a researcher believes something is true, but it is actually false, this is called a type one error. So our results must be verified. To verify their results, Team Platypus Science, I made that name up, checked for biofluorescence in another stuffed platypus. This one, a male housed at the University of Nebraska State Museum. Just like the Chicago specimens, the Nebraska platypus glowed green under UV light as well. Okay, but three platypus is a pretty small number to look at. I think this could be a hoax, just like the first platypus or Australia. Maybe, but in this case, it's not reasonable to look at every single platypus out there to check if they glow under UV light. In this situation, researchers have to start with a sample. They take a few platypi and notice a pattern, then extrapolate or extend beyond to suggest truths about all platypi. In statistics, the higher the sample size, the more accurately and confidently researchers can make suggestions about the whole population. Okay, so the more platypi tested, the more likely biofluorescence, platypi, and Australia are all not a hoax. Correct. Three platypi is a small sample size. And because of this, researchers were limited, or they had to be cautious, drawing conclusions about biofluorescence in platypus. One of the things researchers were confident about is that the trait doesn't vary by sex because both the male and the female specimens show the same pattern and intensity of biofluorescence. Why exactly would platypi glow in ultraviolet light? Again, a small sample size means the research team can't make any definitive statements but they do have a hypothesis. There isn't much difference between the male and the female biofluorescence, so the trait is not likely related to mating. To make an informed guess what it is related to, let's consider other mammals that have been found to have biofluorescence, the flying squirrel and the possum. Do you notice a link between these three mammals? All of them are either nocturnal, which means they're primarily active at night, or they're crepuscular, which means they're primarily active during dusk and dawn. 
Lots of animals active in low light environments have ultraviolet sensitive vision, and this helps them see without visible light. The platypus tracks prey using electric currents, electrolocation. So biofluorescence probably doesn't help them find food. But the ability to absorb UV light and re-emit it in the visible light range could help the platypus camouflage, making it easier to sneak up on prey that can only see in ultraviolet wavelengths. Think of biofluorescence like uh, the invisibility cloaking from the 1987 film Predator, or the invisibility cloaking from the 1990 film Predator 2. Right now, this invisibility cloaking idea is just a hunch. Observing the platypus in the wild will be crucial to test these different hypotheses and understand why a platypus really glows in the dark. Something else interesting about platypus biofluorescence is what it suggests about mammals in general. Remember the independent evolutionary journey the platypus went on to become an egg-laying mammal at least 100,000 years ago? It split with the placentals and the marsupials, but consider the three mammals known to have biofluorescent fur. Flying squirrels, number one, are placental, like humans. Possums, the second animal, are marsupials, just like kangaroos. With this new discovery, the platypus, which is a monotreme, rejoins the pack. Since these mammals are all very distantly related, the research raises another question. Is biofluorescence a trait that our ancient mammalian ancestors all had? Has it remained in the species that benefit from it the most? Good scientists ask a lot of questions. So what compelled the research team to shine an ultraviolet light on the platypus? Paula Anik, the study's first author, was quoted in the Science Times, calling it a mix of curiosity and serendipity, which translates to us as a lucky discovery. And luck, believe it or not, is the impetus for a lot of research. People are just curious about the world around us. Researchers may end up in different fields for many reasons, including personal passions, talents, and interests. But at the heart of every journal article or experiment is a research question, something that the researcher is curious about. Sometimes this curiosity generates a hypothesis, a potential truth about the world that can be tested. For example, a hypothesis could be Platypus fur is biofluorescent. A hypothesis is accompanied by something called a null hypothesis, which is just the opposite truth or an alternative explanation. The null hypothesis for this study would be platypus fur is not biofluorescent. Pretty simple, right? It's this curiosity about the world around us that leads to new discoveries, like the glowing platypus, which makes a unique species even more fascinating. Examining the platypi in their natural habitat will help researchers learn more about this one-of-a-kind species 
and the undiscovered world all around us. And sadly, that may not be easy or one day even possible. Like so many other species, the platypus is facing threats to its survival. Last month, scientists from the University of New South Wales, the Australian Conservation Foundation, World Wildlife Federation Australia, and the Humane Society International Australia jointly nominated the platypus to be listed as vulnerable under Australia's national environmental laws. Some scientists, like those working for the state of Victoria, have also recommended the platypus be considered vulnerable at the regional level. Assessing the health of the platypus population is tricky because there is a lack of long-term population monitoring. The motivation to have our furry, duck-billed, web-footed friend listed as vulnerable was based on research that found the amount of platypus habitat, or land and water they live on, has shrunk by almost 25% since 1990. The biggest reasons for these habitat losses are land clearing, drought, and water level regulation like dams. Part of platypus conservation includes fighting newly proposed environmental legislation, which, according to the Australian Conservation Foundation, does not, quote, address any of the key failings in our environmental law, end quote. The platypus is a curious and wonderful species. One that drew disbelief when they were first seen by Europeans hundreds of years ago, and one that continues to inspire us with their wild combination of traits. Like many other species, human activity threatens the platypus's existence. If we want to learn more about these strange little creatures, and potentially a little bit about our own ancestral origins, we need to keep healthy platypus habitat around. At Terra Informa, we want to do more to share the latest discoveries from the research world. We want to make the science that we love understandable for people who can't access research articles, don't have the insider knowledge, or honestly, don't have the patience to read a scientific journal. To recap, we did a lot of science communicating this episode. We introduced parts of the research process like journal articles, peer review, and academic literature. We explained some barriers to accessing research, like jargon and paywalls, and we stuck in some pieces of the scientific method, explaining sample size, hypothesis and null hypothesis, extrapolation, and type one error. Oh, and then we hit you with platypus facts monotreme, electrolocation, biofluorescence, crepuscular. We hope this episode got you excited about new scientific discoveries and you learned a little about the humble platypus. If you want to hear more episodes about new environmental research, maybe find out if Australia is a hoax. Australia is not a hoax. Then share this episode and let us know. Until next week, stay safe and keep an eye out in the dark where you might find a glowing green platypus.
I've been your host, Elizabeth Dowdell. And I'm Charlotte Thomason. Thank you to our writers this episode, Sonic Patel and Tiana Barber-Cross. And as always, thanks to Hannah Cunningham for being a superstar and working double duty as a writer and producer. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, or our Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. If you're passionate about environmental news and stories, consider volunteering with us at Terra Informa. We are always looking for new team members. If you're interested, email Tara at cjsr.com and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.